and welcome to this week's episode of Making It to the Mic. I'm your host, Stephanie Pam Roberts, and my guest today is Paula Gammon-Wilson. Paula is an award-winning voiceover performance director, casting director, and producer, primarily focused on children's content, and she runs her own company called Pepsquali VO and Sound Design. She and I met back in 2014 when she cast me in an animated series called Pumpkin Reports, which I worked on with season one guest Lindsay Shepard. This episode with Paula is full of amazing nuggets about what it's like to work in the dubbing industry, how she casts her shows, and what she's looking for from her actors during sessions. I'm really excited to share it with you, so let's listen in. Here's my conversation with Paula Gammon-Wilson. Hello, Paula. How are you today? I'm okay. Thank you for having me, Stephanie. Oh my goodness. Thank you for being here. I said before we started that you were one of the first people that came to mind when I decided to do uh, people behind the mic. So I was really appreciative that you said yes. Well, I'm honored that you asked me since you're part of the OG Pepsquali VO crew. So I'm excited to talk with you just because it's nice to talk with you. We don't get to do that much anymore. So I'd love to start by just asking you to tell us about your journey. How did you make it to where you are behind the mic as a casting director, voice director, all of the many hats that you wear? Um, I was originally interested in production management. I went to a performing and visual arts high school for stage management originally. It was the only um, program for teenagers in production. And by the time I left there, I was already um, working professionally. And I went on to college and double majored in dance and theater management because I wanted to run dance companies. I knew that very early. And I was union by the time I was 21 and I had my first Broadway gig when I think it was 22. And I also danced uh, mostly to understand how to speak concretely with choreographers because uh, I didn't want to be like, oh, you want the lights to change on the tourney thing. I wanted to be able to say you you want the lights to shift on the tambay, glissa, padasha. Like I wanted to speak with them concretely. Um, but that led to one of my dance professors suggesting I audition for something from a non-managerial standpoint. And so I sort of opened Dance Magazine and put my, you know, closed my eyes and just put my finger on a on the audition pages. Um, and it was an audition for the Ailey Schools Professional Division in New York. So I, I'm originally from the East Coast. I was going to school in California at the time. And so I flew back to the East Coast for Christmas break my junior year and took a bus to New York <laughs> and stayed in a random hotel overnight and did the Ailey audition the next morning and they accepted me. So I took, I took five years off of school and danced professionally for those five years and really learned a lot about being on the other side of the, the table as it were. And it was a very good five years as far as my growth and understanding of what I wanted and what I didn't want from the kind of work I did as a producer and production manager. And that led to working as a director and choreographer for musicals, um, primarily overseas. And then in 2000, it was late 2011, I came back to the U.S. Uh, after several years of traveling and I was looking for a job uh, and I had all this like random, <laughs> like very peripatetic experience as a production manager and as a stage manager and a choreographer and a director. And, blah. Um, and there was a voiceover company looking for an associate producer. It was a dubbing house. Um, and I applied there and they hired me like that afternoon. Like I think I, I interviewed at like 10 and they hired me at three, you know, that kind of thing. Wow. And it was quickly apparent that I was like a little bit beyond what they needed me to do. And so I was taking on more and more sort of responsible, like roles as far as responsibility went, but without the pay that went with them, that kind of thing. And so I left there um, after a year or so. And a, a company that I'd worked with there tracked me down and was like, hey, we really liked how you worked on our shows. Would you be willing to continue working? And I said, well, I hadn't intended to do this work anymore because I'm actually a dancer and production manager. And that's kind of where my passion lies. And they were like, oh. We really like working with you. Can you find some place? 
So they gave me four days to find a recording studio. And I found one, which is with Gustar, as you know. And they flew in from overseas and met with me and went, yep, this works. And I think I cast you like seven days later. <laughs> I think that was my first show um, that was just mine. And uh, Oh, my gosh. And that was how that started. That was 2014. So I, I, this was never the original plan. But I went from that show with seven actors to now I think I regularly employ over 200 actors a month right now. And I'm directing 11 shows simultaneously. I don't recommend that. It was just because the pandemic made things get stacked on each other. There were things that were they were in production that got halted and things that were already on my calendar for 2021 and they all ended up on top of each other. So yeah, I'm directing 11 shows in seven languages right now. Wow. I'm proud of what my little company did. I'm proud of the wonderful people that I've had the chance to work with over the last seven years and, and we'll just keep trucking and making stuff. That's incredible. So for the listeners who may have listened to some of the guests from season one, uh, the show that Paula is referring to, I actually did with Lindsay Shepard, who's one of my guests from uh, season one. So it was kind of fun to interview her because we had actually never met in person, um, which I'd love to kind of talk to you too, Paula, about that process. But um, we never met in person, but there we are. Like we're like talking to each other in this cartoon. Yes. The joy of dubbing. Yeah. <laughs> it's that you really never, ever meet each other. It's a very strange world. Yeah. So while we're already on that topic, I would love to know kind of what your process is. Like, how do you as the director keep everything straight? How do you know? Because we recorded separately. I would love to know kind of like how you view that, you know, how you kind of keep straight how what everyone's read is and how it's going to mesh together. And, you know, knowing that my inflection is going to match when you put it with Lindsay's and, and like what that process is. It's interesting. The two shows that I did with you in 2014 were actually the last time that I dubbed anything. Actually, no. Um, yeah, I did the two shows with you in 2014. And then I did one more show in 2018. And those were the last times that I dubbed anything into English. All of my dubbing work since then has been in foreign languages. When I'm dubbing, I'm always looking it's a feeling thing. I, I think that's that sounds so kind of non-answery. But um, there's a both you have to honor the performance that was there originally, but you also have to make the character your own. And so mm. in some ways, my actors who dub are some of my favorite actors because they'll take a moment and make it really live while remaining true to what's happening on screen. And that's a really hard thing to do. Because it's a skill. It's like a whole separate world um, to to recognize what's happening on screen and live in it while also matching the mouth movement, while also physicalizing it, while also being in the moment. It's just, it's just a lot. And so it's always my goal to know as much as I can about the show and as much as I can about what the original director was intending in every scene so that when I'm directing everyone separately, I'm still honoring that original voice. But I also have opinions about the characters because culturally things change. Like if I'm dubbing a show into Portuguese and a show into Finnish, I will make different choices for the actors. I'll ask them to do slightly different things with the same moments because I know culturally what the person in the Brazilian Portuguese cast did and what the person who did the English original and what the person in the Finnish cast is or you know is going to do aren't going to be the same like they won't be read the same way by the audience so i'm always trying to be cognizant of what what those particular audiences need in order for the story to be told in the way that it was originally told right and part of that is that i have a wonderful team of translator flap adapters 
um, that I've cultivated over the years. And I try to keep the same writers with particular properties so that they grow with the characters. Um, so there's some consistency in the way they're writing the characters and the way they're interpreting the English and um, across their particular language. But at, at, at base, I'm just, I always just try to know as much as I can about the show. And unlike a lot of um, dubbing directors, I like to time code my own shows. I'll actually, I'm the one that goes through and time codes every mouth movement that puts in all of the notes about reacts that it's me. And that's how I learned the show. It's a pain in my butt. takes a long time, um, especially when I'm working on like a 25 or 30 minute cartoon and I'm having to, you know, look at 11 characters and map all their reacts and all that. A lot of people have an assistant who does that. And then the first time they're really seeing the script is when they're sitting down to direct it. And I find that terrifying. Yeah, I would too. <laughs> so I, I usually take the time to time code my own show because it allows me to know sort of the arc of the character and, and to understand what's happening in each moment. Right. And your notes are always so helpful and specific. Um, but for those who don't know much about dubbing, what is the time code? Can you tell us, just explain in layman's terms what that means? So I got to show it's in Korean. And the character says, which is, hello, how are you? And apologies, my Korean's really rusty, so my accent may have been horrible. And has like 12 syllables. Hello, how are you? Has five. Mm. So um, my translator flap adapter going from Korean to English might change that sentence to, hey, dude, what's up? What's going on with you today, man? <laughs> Because <laughs> they need to fill up those 12 mouth movements, but without changing the meaning or changing the relationship of the characters or changing how the story can go from there. They still need a response that, that is similar. And so what I do when I get a show that's in another language is that I actually watch it. And there's a time code burn, which is sort of, it's a little clock, basically, in the upper right-hand corner, bottom left-hand corner, bottom center. It just depends on the client that counts the frames, the minutes, the hours, um, frames, seconds, minutes, hours. I'm watching for the mouth movement to start for each character in every moment of the show, quite literally. So if character A starts talking, I will tab through the, the video to find where their mouth first opened. And that's the beginning of where I need my translator to work, the beginning of where my actor needs to start. <laughs> that's a, it, for each line. Then when the scene you know, shifts to another character. Let's say John says, how are you? I time code the beginning, the, literally the, the animated movement of the H. And then if Bobby answers good, I'm time coding for, I'm noting the mouth movement of the G on good so that we're always all starting at the same point. There's a reference point for all of us to, to move through the whole script. And I divide everything by character and that's how you get a time coded script. And it, you know, it can be quite detailed. So it's, lines, it's reacts, it's, you know, gas or, or someone falling down the stairs. I have to time code each step hit so that we know how far apart things are. Um, some people will just put reacts. Like, like I used to, when I, the couple of times that I, there was a period of time when I was doing a lot of voiceover work myself in Asia and they would just, they would put like a beginning time code and just say reacts. And I would watch it down. I would just watch it as it went. And sometimes it would be like two and a half minutes of me just being like, ah, oh. <laughs> trying to like fill in all this stuff. And I remember thinking, this is so frustrating because I'm just guessing. Like I'm watching and making a choice, which is great, you know, in the moment. But it's also 
a little bit unfair with no warning and just one watch down. So I try to say things like open mouthed fear react so that you have something to go on as a performer prior to seeing it once or twice and then doing it. Because unfortunately, dubbing time is money. So it's common for the voiceover performer to get, you know, you might see something twice. Let's watch this moment twice. And then you just got to make a decision about what it is. And so I try to give as much information beforehand so that it's not totally wong, as it were, (laughs) that you're actually like able to make an acting choice. But man, what a detailed amount of work. I don't know that I have the patience for that. That's incredible that you do all the time coding yourself because it is so, I mean, then we as the actors, when we get the scripts, it's just us. Like we don't see everybody else's lines, but it could be like for, you know, a 15 minute episode. It could be like many, many pages of these lines and the reacts and everything has that time code. Like it starts at 140101 and goes to 140102 or whatever. And to I love that you do that yourself, though, and that that's part of your process. That's incredible. Thank you. I, I don't understand how people can't. I just find it odd because um, I sat down a couple of times and watched other directors work. And actors will ask them questions and they don't know the answer because they haven't actually watched the show yet either. Mm. And I find that I'm like, no, you actually need to know what the motivation is or what's going on in this moment or why this choice was made because it should be collaborative in that way. Like it should still feel like acting, even though it's you sort of as an actor sort of replicating another person's performance. You're sort of the not the translator in terms of language, but you're the translator because when we as the actors come in, like we haven't watched the whole episode. We might not have even, I mean, for something like Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh or something that's more well-known or has had a longer history, there's reference that you can go home and watch. But for a new show or something that's coming over and you might not have access to, you're sort of the funnel of of us because we don't have the ability or the time to watch and read it beforehand. Because like you said, you know, dubbing is quick. So I feel like it's super important for you to have have that knowledge so that you can then impart it to us so that we are all on the same page and we all get it. Yeah. I I mean, someone has to. Sometimes it's a production manager. Sometimes it's an assistant. But um, I don't have a lot of those other people running around. I'm a, I'm a small but busy company and I like it that way. So yeah, for me, it's, it's just me doing it. And I know you work with a lot of international clients and, you know, doing all of these shows in other languages. How many languages do you fluently speak? And or how many languages do you sort of fluently speak? Um, I speak English. Um, I can make myself understood solidly uh, and understand what's going on around me in Portuguese best. And then Spanish, I I can understand. But when I respond, I tend to respond in Portuguese. And then um, I can still read and write Korean pretty well. But my listening and my speaking have have mostly disappeared because I haven't used it regularly in about 10 years. Uh, if push comes to shove, I can I can at least make myself understood and buy bread and get on and off the bus and get directions in um, in German, Italian, and Russian. But I have to like think really hard in Russian because I haven't had to use Russian since I was there. I was there for um, several months when I was thirteen. So how how is it to work with a client? who like the client is located somewhere that maybe you don't like I think for pumpkin reports that they were Italian if I'm remembering yes so how is that you know obviously you have some maybe you have some a translator helping you kind of navigate but um but I'm so curious what that relationship is like and if things literally get lost in translation where they think that you're gonna deliver one thing and something gets kind of lost and it's something else and you know how that process goes Usually when I'm working with a foreign company, they assign me someone who 
is either bilingual or completely fluent in English. Most of the European companies, one of the requirements is that you speak English among as well as whatever your native tongue is. I mean, English is kind of the lingua franca in Europe. Um, which I find super annoying, actually, because <laughs> I, I live overseas. So when I, whenever I'm speaking whatever the native language is and they notice that I'm struggling, they all just switch to perfect English. And I'm like, no, I am not the dumb American. I am trying to speak the native language here. Just be patient with me. And they're all, you know, always super nice because like, oh, it's so cool how you're not trying to be the dumb American. And I'm like, yeah, thank you. <laughs> but you have to let me be the dumb American so I can just, <laughs> I know I sound like I'm a five-year-old, but I actually want to get better. So whenever possible, I'll switch to whatever their native language is, um, which they, many will like, are, what? Oh, that's so great. Uh, especially when I'm dubbing, because if I know something is not working linguistically or something, you know, in the moment that we're recording that the words aren't fitting right and you know, the translation just doesn't feel right, I'll volunteer other options for words. And that always seems to surprise clients. And <laughs> they're like, well, how did you know that that? I think uh, things getting lost in translation are usually more cultural things, choices in the English language scripts that get changed to something else that doesn't work. Um, or holidays that are referenced, or historical events that no one in this foreign country would have any sense of, or vice versa. Mm. Or even like slang things. Slang is always really interesting in scripts because you're trying to make it, the idioms don't make sense when you go from language to language. Like the direct translation is like, yeah, and then the cow spills milk, you know, like that, like what, you know? Um, so those things are difficult. But the actual working process, because production is production is production, there are very few issues um, there. Uh, occasionally, we run into things where how something is constructed doesn't make sense to me, or vice versa. Like um, in Europe, they'll often do this thing where they'll they'll have someone record a scratch track that's not the actors, not anyone, so that they can quickly get things to animatic. But then sometimes that means I get a, a show to dub where the English has the emphasis on all the wrong syllables, you know? And so then I'm trying to make it work with either actual English or a foreign language, but the English is spoken very strangely so that so that the cadences are kind of all weird and wrong. Um, and that can be a little frustrating. And so sometimes, since the majority of my work is actually directing prelay, the original voices, um, I will get a client who wants me to direct a dub and I'll say, you know, what would be cheaper and faster is if I direct the prelay so that you have a good English track going in and there's one less iteration of remove later. Convincing people to work that way has taken some time, but that's kind of what I've become known for as the person who directs solid English prelay, even if the show is going to be in other languages, because often European companies will make the show in English in the hope that it will get picked up in all of the markets that um, use English in North America primarily, but in other parts of the world. So a Dutch show might, they'll record it in English first because they eventually hope that it will get famous enough in Europe that a U.S. market will buy it and they want to have the English perfect. So they'll actually record it in English first and then dub it, which I find kind of interesting. That's really interesting. The dubbing scene is... It's its own entity. And if you're not in it, you don't really know much about it. And then once you get in it, it's like, oh, my goodness, this is all there's a lot that goes into all of this that I just didn't realize. Like, I never I never realized that. It's a strange world. Um, some of it makes me a little bit sad because of the the idea that you have to make it in English first, because I think sometimes things get lost 
from the original script. Like there was a show that came to me from Brazil and because they knew my Portuguese was solid. They were like, can you do the translation adaptation of this? Because they wanted to make it in English first, but they'd written all the scripts in Portuguese. And so I was translating and I was like, oh, there's these wonderful moments that I actually can't translate this way. Mm. Like the jokes don't land. I'm actually just going to have to rewrite this section of some of the shows because they culturally there's no equivalent. And the Brazilian audiences will get, you know, the original, but it makes me sad that the way they have to sell it is to not, that I, I can't remain true to the original heart of the show in exactly the same way because they're trying to sell it to a larger market. And I'm like, oh, but this wonderful moment, this wonderful relationship, I have to sort of like flatten because none of the jokes and the things that they're exchanging. I can make a new relationship that's as punchy, but it's not the original writer's intent. Uh, and that makes me a little sad. Right. Switching gears a little bit, what is your process? So a client comes to you, they say, we've got this, um, you know, the show that we want you to work on. We want you to cast it as well as, you know, be the the voice director. So kind of what's your process from there? Who do you send uh, that audition to? And then when you're listening back, what stands out to you and kind of makes you put somebody in a, you know, a yes pile or a maybe pile? And what makes you go, oh, no, they're not right for this? So part one, the casting, uh, I try to get a clear understanding of what the client actually wants, because sometimes what they say they want is what they actually want are very, very different. Um, and I will, whenever possible, I ask for at least one or two scripts. They don't always have those ready, but I'll ask for them because I want to, I want to know what the show is actually doing. Um, often people will come to me quite early in the process and they might not actually have scripts ready. So I'll say, okay, can you give me anything, like a little bit of dialogue for each character? And that often will clue me into what they actually want. Because they might say, we want a 16-year-old with a spunky voice. But then the copy they give me is like super sarcastic and dry. And so I'm like, okay, so their idea of spunky is not actually my idea of spunky. What they're looking for is kind of like a sassy, sort of like droll Wednesday Adams kind of character as opposed to like, I don't know, punky Brewster. And then from there, I have two, two banks of casting databases basically i have the agents and managers that i like working with and i have the actors i like going to directly and the actors like i like going to directly are usually unagented actors i try not to have them overlap or I, when they do i tend to go to the agent unless the agent's like no i'm comfortable with you going directly to this actor so i have those two groups and i tend to be a little bit draconian about how i send out my breakdowns in that my breakdowns actually have quite specific instructions because that's my first cut if the actor can't follow the instructions that are in my initial breakdown i just shunt them off to a pile that's called archive and i only go to the archive if i just haven't found what i want and the reason i do that is if you can't follow my directions in the breakdown you're probably not going to follow my directions in a session either that is so important for us to hear. And the reason I do that is it's common for me, especially once the pandemic started and voiceover work was the only work around, but I would get sometimes 1,400 to 1,500 auditions. Oh my gosh. Files per audition. And I remember being an actor. So my goal is always to listen to them, to all of them. And so I had to make this rule. Um, it actually started, I started doing this in 2017 when I cast the Peanuts. And that was, I received like 1,500 auditions for seven characters in the Peanuts. And and it was just awful. And I was like, okay, I have to find something to do that will make it easier for me to, to sort of get through the first cut. I've got to make a first deep cut because I've got 48 hours to provide them with my selects. Wow. And I have 1,500 files here. And so I was like, okay, who labeled their files correctly? Let's start there. And there was one agent 
who literally, she sent me like 250 auditions. None of them were edited. None of them were labeled correctly. None of them were sorted by character. Not, like she had not followed a single, a single one of my instructions to the agents. And so I wrote to her and I was like, hey, would you be willing to do X, Y, Z? You know, does your engineer have the possibility they could, you know, quick batch rename just so they sort correctly because I have so many. And she never responded. So I just shunted those off. Wow. And it was a it was a horrible feeling. But I was like, that just took care of, you know, <laughs> 10% of my, like, I just got to get rid of these because I can't search through them to find what I need. I actually, I just actually don't have the time. And so that's become my first thing. I And my instructions are specific and a little bit weird. I don't ask, I ask people not to slate. And I do that on purpose because I tend to, this is a slightly touchy thing, but I call it color-weighted casting. I will send a breakdown for a white character to everyone. I will send a breakdown for a black character to my black actors only. And so part of the reason I ask people not to slate is that casting directors or producers will often make a decision based on a name. Hmm. I don't want anyone to hear the name. I only want them to hear your voice. And so I ask people not to slate. I ask people to label their stuff a certain way. And if those two things aren't matched, they go in the archive. That's my first cut. Uh, from there, I listen down to everything. And what I'm looking for is people who make choices. Not necessarily the right choice, just a choice. And I'm also looking for specificity. There's a, like, if um, if the character is, is 11 years old, and it says they're 11 years old, they have a lisp, um, and they're super shy, and I get a loud read without a lisp, they get in the archive pile. Because I want you to live in the reality of the particular character. Like, do your homework a little bit. If the scene starts with the character running in from the forest to yell at their parent, you better be out of breath. I better hear that out of your mouth before you say your first word. Otherwise, you go in the archive. So I'm, I'm looking for people who, who kind of do the homework of making a person, not necessarily making a voice, because there are a lot of people who can do voices. I'm looking for someone who makes a person who has a voice and a person who's living in the, in the world of that moment. And I try to give as much, much, much information as I can because I hate those breakdowns that go out where it's like two lines of dialogue and no other information. I'm like, how was an actor supposed to do anything with that? So I'll ask, you know, what's happening before? Or, or sometimes I'll make it up. Like if someone gives me two lines of dialogue, I'll choose a place for that dialogue to live and I'll choose an emotion for that moment. Like, you know, it's pouring rain outside and, and Tom comes stumbling in half drunk. And then I'll, you know, the actor's two lines of dialogue will go in because I'm trying to give the actor something to grab onto that allows them to make interesting choices Uh, because it's the choices that I want to hear, like what decisions have been made about this person. So that's what I'm looking for, someone who's true to what's happening in the moment and is is fully embodying it vocally. It's why most of the people that I work with regularly all come from musical theater, theater or improv backgrounds Hmm. um, because they're accustomed to making character. This is gold. I hope people are taking notes. This is incredible. I feel like when we get these auditions, we need to be taking the time, especially with these animation auditions, too, where there is a character and there is life and there are choices to be made that we need to take a little extra time to read every word on the page, make a decision based on that. I, I you know, even 
what you said about like he runs in like it's like that um, like level of detail that we really need to be paying attention to so that that's what what stands out because if you've listened to 400 of people just saying you know let's say the line is like i'm here and you just listen to 400 people go i'm here i'm here i'm here and then you know 401 goes oh i'm here you're like that's it that's the one yeah there it is yeah exactly i tend to do two or three listens through too so i'll make a cut Then I'll listen to my current group. I'll make another cut. Then I'll listen to my current group. I'll make another cut. So you want to you want to get through the first cut. My first cut is always the deepest. So as an actor, like I'm looking for specificity, and then I'm looking for real specificity, and then I'm looking for who has the read that's closest to what I had in my head. Mm. And we'll never know that. So that's our the only thing we can do is is make the choices. Exactly. And and if someone makes an interesting choice that wasn't in my head, they'll often stay in the in the submission group as well. And then I never throw people's auditions away. Even the archive stays there because sometimes the choices that I made are actually not what the client wants. And I've had clients come back and say, well, these are all like too friendly or these are all too warm or these are all too strong. And then I'll go, okay, so let me go back two iterations to the first cut. And if these are too soft, then where are the harder ones? And I'll go back through and submit a new set. Um, because, you know, people took the time to record this stuff. I'm not going to toss it. I, that always bums me out when cast members are like, oh, yeah, toss that. I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> there's probably something really good in there. I also make note of the auditions that I like but that are wrong for this project. And I make sure, based on what I hear, to ask those particular actors to submit for other things. Because I don't just cast the shows that I'm directing. I also cast for several other studios. And so I'm able to recommend other people for other projects. At any one time, I might be casting five or six shows, but I may only be directing two or three that month. Do you prefer when you are both roles for the same show or it doesn't matter to you? Uh, It actually doesn't matter. Um, Casting is such a weird thing because I'm having to like sort of be inside the the project director's head, like the actual creative director's head, while also trying to figure out what I would do as a director, even if I'm not directing it. I'm looking for the voices that work well together and the sort of like, like if you're making a quilt, you want all the threads to be different colors. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so, so I'm trying to like make my tapestry, as it were, vocally um, and provide that level of, of range in the submissions that I send. And sometimes I'll just say to somebody like, there were so many good voices for this. This cut is not as deep as I normally do, but I want you to hear all 15 of these people because I don't actually know quite what you want. And so I'll submit more than I normally do. But I usually, I don't really have um, any sort of like particular need to to be both roles. They sort of exist in separate places in my head a little bit. Do you, I'm sure it's different for every project, but about how many people do you submit for a specific role? That depends on what comes in, honestly. Like sometimes I'll submit as few as three. I'm just saying, I'm sorry, these were the only three that actually did anything that I thought was appropriate. And sometimes... That's a good wake-up call for the producers, for them to realize that the character isn't well-written, that they're, you know, they need to actually sort of rethink the character because maybe they're asking the actors to do too much or too little or there's just not enough understanding of, like, the text doesn't support what they're trying to do with the character. So I get a lot of, like, bland auditions because no one can figure out how to interpret the person. And then other times I'll get, you know, just wonderful, wonderful stuff from hundreds of people. And I... I sweat my way through making a hugely deep cut and I might submit 15, you know. So I don't think I've ever submitted more than 15, I'm trying to think. 
feel like there was one project where I was just like, I can't make a cut, guys. I can't do it. Um, I got down to like, tw- yeah, I got down to like 25, I think. Um, and I was like, you, here you go. Because these are just all excellent. And they were all really different. And that was another time when they were like, we just weren't clear enough about the character. Um, and much of, much of that group of 25 ended up playing other roles in the show because it was a quite large ensemble cast and they they ended up doing other things, which I thought was cool because they all gave wonderful auditions, but they're all vastly different. I think that's a good reminder for us too, that it's a numbers game. Like we have to be the best at every single audition, which can feel daunting. But if I'm going to be in that top 15 from 1500, I have to do something. <laughs> yeah. I hated auditioning when I was an actor. <laughs> like I hated it. Uh, it's It's one thing I don't, miss at all. But working on the other side for so many years, I can always tell the actors who they view auditioning almost like a a chance to practice, like a chance to rehearse. And so they will come at it like it's a work in progress, like it's a it's a living, breathing thing. And those people always get picked mm. because they're not they're not thinking about the end. They're thinking about the moment. They're not thinking about getting the job. They're thinking about making something in that moment. And you can really hear that in an audition. When someone's invested in the moment and, or when they're invested in the, holy crap, I hope I can pay my rent. There's a very different, <laughs> there's a very different vocal energy between those two kinds of actors. Yeah. Right. And I think we forget that too. And it's hard. I obviously like we need to know the specs of payment and like, oh, this is going to be X amount of dollars per hour or, you know, for a commercial, like it's going to be this usage and this runtime and this is the fee. But sometimes I wish that there was an option to just like black that out because it's hard to not do math. Mm -hmm. Like, ooh, oh, this is like $250 an hour for this. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Oh, and I get to audition for one of the leads. Oh, I bet that's going to be a lot of hours. And then you're like in a totally different headspace than making a bold choice about whatever forest she's running through. Right. Yeah. It's it, it's hard. It's actually just hard. Um, You have to sort of like divest yourself of the responsibility for your own career for a little while while you audition. You just have to be an actor for a little bit. It's such a weird thing. Um. Like I, I booked a lot of work as a dancer, even though I, it wasn't my goal because it wasn't my goal. Totally. And so I would go, I would go to these dance auditions and just have a blast because I was getting to dance cool new stuff. And my friends would be so angry. They're like, you're a production manager. (laughs) Why are you booking all this work? But it was because I actually didn't care. Yep. My love was production management and I, I loved dancing, but not in the same way. So whether I got the job or not didn't matter. And so you have to get to this place with your audition process where booking the job doesn't matter. Doing a good performance, making something you're proud of, creating a real person matters. But the end game doesn't. And some of that comes with monetary security, <laughs> but some of it comes just with a like a mindset thing where you have to just sort of put your put the business you away for a little bit and go back to that moment in improv class in college or you know, the Saturday afternoon or Sunday night class that you took where you were just making stuff and just make something, something that you'd want people to hear, um, because that's what I hear when I'm listening. What a great, like, reframe and, and way to flip the script in your head. And I do find that some some of the auditions that I have booked are the ones that 
not that I've put in less time. It's it's almost like, well, it's Sunday. Like, I guess I'll just jump in and do a couple of auditions and whatever. Like, I'm just like not invested. I'm already thinking like, oh, but later today I get to have barbecue because it's Memorial yeah. Day, whatever. And then <laughs> yeah. those are the ones I book because my brain is focused but not invested in the same way where I'm like, oh, my God, I haven't booked a job this week. I haven't booked a job in three weeks. Oh, my mm-hmm. God, I haven't booked a job in six months or whatever. And then you're just in a, a stuck headspace and you can't break out of it. Yeah, we can hear strangely. It's not desperation exactly, but it's sort of like a there's like a lack of confidence in your own process when that happens. And so I can hear confidence. I can hear someone making a choice and sticking with it and honoring it. And that's attractive to me as a listener. It's, you know, you don't want your pilot in the airplane to be like, uh, I guess we're going to land on the airstrip near, you know, you want them to be like, we're landing here. And that's that's what I'm looking for as an actor as well. This is good stuff, Paula. So let's say that we make your cuts and we miraculously get the job from all of our hard work and and dedication and choices, strong choices. So once we're in the booth with you, how can we as voice actors be the best asset to you and teammate? Oh, this is a wonderful question. Um, There's an actor I work with quite a lot. I'm going to name drop him because he's wonderful, Rob Marrera. Rob does this wonderful thing that I wish more actors would do which is that he's just quiet. He actually just listens. And then when it seems like we're ready to go, he says, are we ready? And we say yes. And he delivers exactly what I asked or what the client asked, however many people are on the call. It's clear he was making notes and paying attention. And then he waits again. Um, sometimes actors feel the need to like fill the space with themselves. So they, they sometimes come off as a little bit mm, anxious, which obviously they are. I would be too. It's why I don't act anymore. Because they're trying to please so many people. As an actor, your job is to like please a bunch of people. Half the time, you've never seen them. You don't know who they are. You met them 15 seconds ago, and suddenly you're having to be like, hey, here's me, and don't you hope, hope I hope I'm making the right choices, and you're giving me no information, ah, you know, which is a horrible thing to ask of actors, but we do it every day. And so the actors who just wait, who just say, is it okay if we, or I'm not sure I understood that, could you be clearer, or deliver something, wait listen to the conversation and then say, oh, actually, are you asking for X, Y, Z? Because I could do that read for you. Those actors are great. The ones that keep talking at you, the ones that are like, hey, is that what you wanted? Because I can, uh, do you want me to do, do you, I mean, because often, especially now where everything's audio, I am listening to multiple people talk to me while the actor is also talking to me and I can't do all those things at once. And so as the person that's sort of collecting all of the information, collating it and trying to make it something actable. It's really hard to have an anxious actor and clients who need things from me as well. And sometimes I'm dealing with two or three different languages and I'm the one that's having to tell everyone in the other languages what's going on too. So actors who are patient and responsive are hugely, hugely important to me. You have to be on, but know when to assert yourself. And it's a, that's a skill. That's just a skill. It's really about um, waiting. When we are all in studios, often the actor would just wait and they wouldn't hear anything. They'd just see everyone talking, <laughs> you know, through the glass. And then eventually there'd be a, you know, a talk back mic press and the person would be like, um, okay, we want you to speak slower. But now with everything coming through the interwebs, as it were, that separation between the actor and the client is gone. And so my clients will just say stuff and my actors hear it. And sometimes what they say is super not helpful. It can be rude. It can be unvarnished in a way that just feels cutting. It can be completely incomprehensible. And it's my job 
as the director and as the production manager or whatever hat I'm wearing that day to make it actable for the actor. And so I appreciate the actors who just wait for me to say, oh, so what you actually want is X, Y, Z. Great. Actor person, can you do this? Um, as opposed to sort of skipping me and trying to negotiate with the client because the client actually doesn't know what they want. They're expecting me to fix it. That's why they hired me to be the director. Right. Um, it's the actors who, it's a weird thing. They're not too talkative, but they're too anxious to get it right. It's not your job to get it right. It's my job to help you get to a place that everyone's comfortable with. There is no right in a creative process. There's only closer to what everyone was hoping for. Yeah, that's so valuable because you're right. When you're in your booth alone and there's just silence on the line, I don't know why we all, maybe not everybody, but I feel like the default is, oh my gosh, they hate me. They're talking about me. They're trying to figure out if they can replace me. Whatever your mind spins to when really they're probably like, oh, that was so good. That was amazing. Do you think that because it was so amazing, she could even do something more amazing? Like we never think that. Why don't we think that? Yeah, you can think positive things. And and it's, it's interesting. Some people go silent and they have the conversation. Now, since we're not all together um, and there's not sort of the studio system that's sort of broken down in many cases, um, when there's silence, it's either because they've muted themselves so they can talk or they actually are just thinking. Hmm. They're actually just thinking. I know with some of my foreign clients where there are multiple languages going on, it's because someone at their end is actually translating for other people so that the one person who speaks English can come back to me with the note. That, I mean, it's, yeah, just be patient. Be open and present, but patient um, in a sort of anticipatory way. I, I much prefer those actors. What a great reminder, too, that it's not always about us, that, you know, that there's other things going on and other things that need to be sorted or translate, literally translated and then back to us that they're not just sitting there talking about us the whole time, that they might be sorting out a moment. Maybe that wasn't their intent in the script and they need to change a word. And then that's what they come back with. Yeah. I mean, nine times out of 10, when there's a really long pause or there's a lot of, lot of chatter, especially when it's foreign languages, it's because they're realizing something doesn't work in the translation or something doesn't work in the script the way they thought it would in the new language. Whenever I can, I will tell the actor, hey, sorry, we're, we're discussing this moment in the script, just give us a moment so that they can relax. But I don't always have the chance to say, this isn't about you, um, because sometimes I'm deep in the discussion as well. And I guess the other side of that is, what are some of your biggest pet peeves? Um, the pandemic's been a, a huge learning experience for me as far as how to work with actors and what I view as professionalism and what I don't. If there's any pet peeve, it is, I do like honesty, which you noted. Uh, I like actors who show up on time. Uh, I like actors who are problem solvers, especially with regards to their own equipment. Please, please, please know how to use your own equipment. I can't, I can't, I can't stress this enough because um, I have a, a slightly odd brain in that I can pretty much visualize anything. So I will close my eyes and I'll say to the actor, what, what computer do you have? Okay. What operating system are you running? Okay which program are you using? And I'll tell them step-by-step step how to adjust everything. And part of that is is that I had to learn it when the pandemic started. <laughs> uh, but part of it is that that's the way my brain works. Like I'll see, I'll just, I can just sort of see it's like the left or leftover dancer in me. If it's a physical space thing, then I know how that works, you know? So, and when I'm telling an actor what to do and they're like, I don't know what that means. That's when I want to break stuff. Because it's like, well, you know, like base level stuff. I expect you to know how your 
program works. I expect you to know where the gain knob is on your preamp. I expect you to know, you know, like which cable hooks into what. I expect you to know the difference between the pop filter and the front of your mic. And I've had a couple of people who've had wonderful equipment, but that's poorly set up. And so I'll ask them to take a picture of their space. And then I'm like, wow, okay, so no. So I know your friend said you needed to mask your your mic, but they didn't mean put it in a shoebox. You know, like literally a mic, like sitting in a shoebox, you know, stuff like that. So where I'm like, wow, okay, wow. I want a, a baseline bit of knowledge. If you've spent the money to make a space, make sure it's a space you know how to use appropriately. And I, I like people to um, be honest about what they're capable of as well, especially with regards to foreign languages. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, I had a wonderful actress, wonderful actress audition for something, wonderful accent, really great choices, so excited. And I don't remember how the conversation came up. She'd been cast, the client was so excited for her. And I asked her something about a sentence in the script where I was like, I'm not sure this is correct translation. Can you tell me? And she's like, oh, I don't actually speak this language. I'm just good with accents. And I was like, this is a dubbing job, sweetie. If we have to change a word, you need to be able to supply something in the moment because I'm not super familiar with this language. This isn't one that I'm, I'm, I don't have the vocabulary for this. Wow. And she's like, oh yeah, well, no, I'm just not super good with that. Like I speak English, but for whatever reason, I have a really good ear. And I was like, well, and so she had four different demos, four different demos in five different languages. Like she had her foreign languages and she had her English language demo. She did not actually speak any of those other languages. She just was amazing at mimicking accents. Wow. And so I couldn't use her because she mimicked other people speaking to record those demos. If I'd brought her in just to record that language as prelay or with other actors who were native speakers, she wouldn't have been able to do it. And so I was like, why are you submitting yourself for foreign language roles when you can't actually speak the languages? You can just sound like other people. I think that's just a great reminder, just in general, just be honest, stay in your lane, figure out what you're good at and and the things that you can excel at. And someone else is going to excel at fluently speaking their language. Yes. Honesty and knowing your equipment. Those are my two. Those aren't pet peeves. Those are just sort of like warnings because I am a fairly patient person, but there are a couple of <laughs> those two things. Um, I get less nice immediately. and. I mean, Questar and I've worked together daily for seven years, and he's usually the only one who knows that I'm about to break things. <laughs> and he might send me a text where, where it's just like his head exploding because he knows that I'm just like, oh, because I don't want the client to know that I'm frustrated because the client's often on the call too. Questar's kind of, I jokingly call him my audio papa um, because he was a mentor as much as he was my engineer. And I learned a lot from him, especially like the first two or three years when I was really, because <laughs> I was, a musical theater director um, and production stage manager for theater who danced. And suddenly I was directing like really big cartoons um, in multiple languages. And sometimes I just made stupid, stupid mistakes because I didn't know stuff. And he would be like, kid, kid, let's not do that. Um, and you know, kudos to him for just being incredibly supportive of me occasionally floundering in some really, really butt-headed ways. And when he could help me out of the situation, he would. And when he couldn't, he'd be like, nope, you screwed the pooch on that one. You know, <laughs> um, I learned a lot from him. And now that we're sort of like on slightly more equal footing, just because I've gotten better, um, 
he's much more of a collaborator. And, you know, over the years, his uh, his role in, in our projects has changed because we've started doing so much more, so much more prelay and so many projects that we take from not just dubbing, but we I'm hired to cast and take them all the way through to the end of production. And so he gets a lot more creative say as far as sound design and how things go together. And I'd have to say that he's really enjoying it. I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but sometimes he's like, I never got to do this kind of stuff. I was always just the the engineer. And he has all this experience and all these really great ideas. And so um, I think he's actually enjoying being more of a creative finally, as opposed to sort of the, the dude for hire. It's been actually, especially over the last like two or three years, we've had a lot more projects where we're doing everything soup to nuts. And those have been really fun because we have actually been able to collaborate more and, and make cool decisions and make stuff. I think that's a great segue to um, kind of my final question, which is, what is your favorite part of your job? Oh, that's a good question. I actually really like it when I'm doing an ensemble record, because those are my favorites, when I can have as much of the cast as possible all together recording at the same time. Um, We'll finish a scene or finish a moment, and you can just hear in the energy of the of the call, because now we're all, you know, using clean feet or whatever to record, um, that everyone knows that they were firing all, on all cylinders. And that that was just a really good take. You know, like there's this thing that happens where there's like, everyone's just on the same page and it just feels good. I, I love those moments when it's, it's truly the moment when everyone's collaborating in a really visceral way. Um, when the choices have been made and we've all done our homework and everyone's taken my direction and something just magical happens and you can just feel it. Like no one wants the moment to go away. Like you finish the last line and there's just silence because everyone's like in it together. That's my favorite part of the job. And that can happen on like a cheesy kids cartoon and it can happen on some, you know, deep podcast about death. You know, like it really just depends on on the sort of the alchemy of the moment and the the group of actors. And you hope it happens continuously it doesn't always but when you have those moments it, it's it's like oh yeah I, I remember now why I do this this is why I do this it's for these kind of wonderful artistic moments in amongst this kind of corporate thing that we all do because animation can get really corporate sometimes it's basically just really long advertisements for toys you still want to make something meaningful and make something that you're proud of and so I'm always looking for that moment and that's that's what I like the most about my job is, is creating creating an environment that engenders that kind of moment for my performers. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here and and taking the time. I feel like this was an incredibly valuable conversation, and I, I hope people got as much out of it as I did listening to you. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful chatting with you as well, since we don't get to do that enough anymore. even believe how much incredible knowledge Paula shared with us so generously during that episode. A few things she said really stuck out, and they sort of fall into two different categories. The first is the more technical side of things, which is what she said about following instructions for her auditions, labeling files correctly, not slating, etc. And knowing your home studio equipment and how it works. And then the second category, which is the acting side of things, making strong choices, living in the given circumstances of the scene and the character, and making a person as opposed to just making a voice. I mean, what a great reminder that voice acting is acting. If you'd like to learn more about Paula, I'm linking her website in the show notes, which you can find at my website, makingittothemike.com. Believe it or not, there are only a few more episodes left of my summer season, so if you have a minute, please rate or leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help more people find the show. 
Thank you so much for listening, and here's a little preview of next week's episode. That was our our dream, you know, because we've we've all kind of come up and we've worked for people who haven't treated us so great, and that's what we are looking to expel. Um, and you got to lead by example, so so that's what we're doing. That's next week on Making It to the Mic.